0: Here's the thing, though. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing, Though podcast. My name is Saleha, and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer/slash/editor, Mitch Price. Hey. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bijigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello Mitch, how are you? How's it going?
1: I'm fine. I'm going well. Nothing crazy to report. Just uh, last week I was like, it was a good week, and then the previous weeks have been kind of, oh, the two weeks have just zipped past. This is another zipping past week, so...
0: Yeah, although I feel like we did do stuff the last two weeks. Sure. We went to the Right One in. Oh, yes. Darlinghurst, which was really great. That was great. That was actually really good. Very impressed. I really liked it.
1: How's your two weeks been?
0: Yeah, mine's been good, just busy. I feel like I've had stuff on after work, like, every day.
1: Mm, Busy girl. uh,
0: Yeah, exactly. And time just kind of flies because I leave the house, you know, to go to work at 9am and then I get home at like 9 p.m. and then I go to bed at like 10.30 and then my day mm. repeats so it just moves really fast. Um
1: yeah, Life under capitalism.
0: Yeah right definitely a cog in the machine but it's been just eventful I think. In a good way? Not necessarily. In a neutral way? Some good some bad. It's been mm. eventful in a good way in the sense that we you know we've watched like a lot of movies and gone to like plays and done fun things which has been really nice but It's also been eventful in a bad way because of all the stories popping up in the news cycle that have just been, like, really heartbreaking the last couple of weeks.
1: Yes, it has been Um, especially rough.
0: Yeah, there's just been a lot of stories of, like, death and horror and it's just been a lot when you work in the media because you're reporting on all of them. Like, one of the stories that I was reporting on the last two weeks was of that crowd crush in Korea and that was, like, really sad. And Mm. I was like reading a lot of testimonials from survivors about what they went through. Because that's what we were covering. And it was just like, it was a lot. (laughs) I was feeling really, I had to go for like a walk afterwards. I was just like, this is really, really sad. And I don't know how to deal with this emotionally.
1: Yes. I've had the same experience. And I imagine it's, you know, way worse for you. Because I have the luxury of reading a horrific story. And then being able to take some time away from it when you actually have to kind of
0: keep doing it, engage with
1: it, uh, and then do more research and kind of, and and write about it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there's been just a few events in the past fortnight even, which have just been so horrific. And I feel like in the past couple of episodes of the podcast, we've talked about traumatic events and events which just kind of like shake your world and you don't really know how to integrate it into that like we're talking yeah. about the dharma thing yeah reality like nope and as well and i feel like in kind of real time i'm experiencing a bit of that it just in terms of these kind of events which just shake your world and i feel like i haven't fully integrated them into my life yet because they're just kind of i don't know what to do with them because they just fill me with so much anxiety yeah but yeah
0: well i mean on that vein yes We wanted to move into follow-up. So the first one being the other really heartbreaking and traumatic event that happened in the last fortnight, which was the murder, I guess alleged murder, of Cassius Turvey, a 15-year-old Indigenous boy from Perth. I feel like most people listening to this episode would be across that but for our minority of international listeners cassius turvey was a year nine student who was 15 years old walking home from school in perth when he and a group of his school friends were approached by a man who then allegedly accused them of vandalizing cars and property and like then that person like got out of the car and attacked the school kids and they all fled. But Cassius Turvey could not. And he was allegedly beat within an inch of his life with a metal pipe, hospitalized where he later died. And it is really, really fucking sad. The alleged perpetrator was white, white 21 year old man who Cassius's family and friends claim, like was hurling racial slurs at him while attacking him and eventually killing him. It's like another death of a young Aboriginal child at the hands of a white man after being accused of some kind of property damage or theft, which is just something that keeps fucking happening here just another name to the list it's really heartbreaking and it's one of those things where i feel like i'm seeing a lot of people be like how does this keep happening and i'm like we know why this keeps happening Mm -hmm. it's because this country literally cannot reconcile itself with the white supremacy that it was built upon this crime is currently before the court so the person accused of murdering cassius turvey will appear in court on november 9 which is when we'll know what he's pleading and because it's before the court the way we talk about this has to be very specific because we're a media group otherwise we will be in contempt of court so we can't talk about it as much as we want to probably until after the court situation but all i'll say is that the family have called this a racially motivated crime and the police are not investigating it as a racially motivated crime so there are no charges of a hate crime involved in this case it is not being brought up This is a charge of murder, which she has not pled guilty for yet. And I don't think like a hate crime in general in Australia has been indicted in many, many years, decades. It's just not something we do here. We don't indict, we don't even charge people with hate crimes in Australia. It's like just like hidden part of the legal system. Yeah. I remember when I was covering, people in like Sydney would remember this, but a couple of years ago, a woman in Parramatta who wore a hijab was assaulted by a man. She was a pregnant woman. And witnesses there alleged that he was using, like, islamophobic slurs against her and stuff. Like, there, there was, like, footage of the attack. It went viral.
1: In the, the Bay Vista. In Bay Vista right. in Paramount. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I, I remember writing about that. I wasn't looking at pedestrian at the time. So, I, like, did a freelance article about it. And, oh, my God, it was so hard <laughs> to publish an article about it because of all the legal loopholes I had to deal with because mm. I wasn't allowed to call it racially motivated. I wasn't allowed to call it. You
1: plainly about it. Like, there's, there's yeah. double speak.
0: Yeah, it's like you can't actually call it what you want to call it. Yeah. And it was really frustrating because it's like, how are we ever going to actually do something about the rampant racism in this country if we can't even call it racism? Like, it was very difficult. And that is what indigenous people have been going through for a very long time. Like, that was just my taste of it as a Muslim person in that Scenario, mm. But there is a lot of frustration right now and I totally get it, especially like because the media coverage has been pretty fucking lacking, if not outright white supremacist. <laughs> like some of the articles published by The Australian, for example, have been incredibly in denial of like any racial context of this crime. Which I wrote about at Pedestrian, and it was a difficult one, a really dicey one to write about, just because, like, I am obviously not an independent writer. I work for a publication which is owned by Nine, and we have a Nine legal team, and we have to, like, not get sued. <laughs> and also, like, being in contempt of court is a crime against the state. It's not a civil crime, so it's a pretty big deal. You can't really do that. But I wrote about it, and my way in was just to be, like, whether or not this man did this. In other situations, completely unrelated to this one, this would be really bad and very racist. Like, it's really hard to talk about in the media. And I wanted to bring that up because I've seen a lot of rightful frustration about media coverage, which I think is largely incredibly racist. But I also just wanted to make a note that, like, I understand your frustration and I wish it was different.
1: Yeah, no, it's utterly uh, ridiculous. It seems that the words hate crime... You know, they're dirty words, but the act isn't. Like, the words are worse than the act.
0: exactly. Same with
1: racism. You're not allowed to call things racist or racially motivated because that is seemingly worse than the racist act itself.
0: Yeah, and with Cassius Turvey, I mean, it's just so heartbreaking. We went to the vigil in Sydney, and Mm. there was a beautiful speech that somebody read out that was written by Cassius' mother. And it just... Broke my heart, but one of the themes that just keeps coming up is, like, people are just trying to fucking live, man. Mm. But just, like, listening, and I was like, this is just so fucked. Like, it's just so fucked that it's it's just not anything that's going to change because we are incapable as a nation of, like, doing anything about it. Vanessa Turnbull Roberts was speaking who I greatly admire and she said in her speech like when are we going to stop filling up town hall like this and I just like resonated with it as I know you did bitch, as well because exactly like how many vigils are we going to attend how many protests are we going to attend nothing's happening because there needs to be because indigenous people feel the outrage it's their people but everybody else needs to feel the outrage and everybody else needs to hold our government our fucking shitty ass laws like people in general accountable like stuff starts with us because indigenous people have been anti-state since fucking colonization days like it's not their job it's our job mm. as settlers as people who profit off colonization in this country to do something to say something
1: what i also loved about turnbulls like when are we going to stop filling up town hall is like underpinning that is a double meaning i don't even know if that was intentional but like on the one hand it's like when are we going to stop filling up town hall you know with these vigils because you know first nations kids continue to be killed. Uh, But then also, when are we going to stop filling up town hall and start filling up the whole city? Yeah. So it's when is this just going to stop happening? But then also, when is action going to be taken to the next level to see fundamental change?
0: The second thing we were going to talk about in follow up was just something from a previous episode when we talked about Harry Styles and his imminent Mm. downfall. We discussed his problematic comments about sex scenes in his movie, My Policeman. Which is now out, and which and I went to the exclusive, lol, screening.
1: I mean, I was there, so it can't be too exclusive, I suppose.
0: You know what? I always get so <laughs> surprised with these screenings because I never get dressed up enough. Like, I always go just, like, after work and I'm in my work clothes, And people come in, like, dresses and heels mm. and makeup. But I'm like, damn, now I feel really underdressed and, like, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> but anyway, we went to a very bougie screening for my policeman in the art gallery in New South Wales. And yeah, it which- was... An experience not just the film, the actual screening itself. Yes. Let's talk about the film first. Okay. I okay. My first thoughts watching it were that the sex scenes were not that special. I don't know what Harry was talking about. Yes.
1: So the whole controversy was him saying that in other films centered on gay relationships, like the sex scenes, uh, you know, they're never like they lack intimate, tenderness. They lack tenderness, and what they really want to do with My Policeman is to have like a gay film uh, with queer characters that that shows kind of love, which is not the case in other queer Queer films, apparently. Yeah, Uh, yeah, but I agree with you. Like, yeah, the the sex scenes were good, but But they weren't, you know, they weren't standout.
0: Yeah, I just was like, this is not more tender than any other queer movie I've watched. In fact, I would say that they were very average and I've seen more tender queer love stories. It was fine. It was fine. There was nothing wrong with them. But like, given the comments... I was like, what are you 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 cancelled yourself for no reason. Mm. If he at least said that and then it turned out to be true, I could eat my well, that's words. That's kind of
1: what the whole episode was about. Yeah. The cancelling himself for no reason.
0: Yeah, Just it's like, what are comments. you doing, fam? Yeah. So it was like, the movie was, I think, fine. It was a fine movie. Mm. I Harry was actually okay in it. Like the Acting was significantly better than in Don't Worry, Darling. It was still not like he's Mm. not a star, Mm. but like it was much better than it was fine. It was very watchable.
1: Yes, I felt the same. I thought I think you're maybe a bit more positive on the movie than Mm. I am. I thought it was like serviceable.
0: Always the case. I'm always a bit less. I'm just a harsh critic. But go
1: on. No, but I thought it was serviceable. The kind of film that you watch and then like forget about the next day because you've seen this film, you know, dozens of times before. Ah, You know what? I was thinking about it while watching it because. I feel like with acting, I'm not the kind of person that like sees a performance and is like, that's a bad performance. Cause I find, I don't understand acting. I think it's like the most magical thing in the world. Like when actors are just able to, you know, embody another character, even if it's kind of shit, I'm still impressed because it's just like, they just have brains that don't work like mine. Um, But I was just trying to pinpoint Harry's performance in this film, as well as with Don't Worry Darling. And just like, how is he as an actor? Because I feel like something's not quite right when I see glimpses of him on screen, it seems fine. But again, like I, I'm just trying to understand how he is as a performer. That's something I feel you like, can't
0: put your finger on, I feel, with him.
1: Well, I feel like I came to a conclusion while watching All it. All right. I feel like I understand how he works as an actor and then maybe how he's able to trick us into thinking he's a good actor. So Harry Styles is undoubtedly very confident in front of a camera. He's very confident on screen. I mean, this has to do with his, his modeling and his music and just being a star. He knows what to do with his body and he knows how his body works. So he's able to really fill up a space confidently within a scene. He knows where to put his hands. He knows where to put his body. And I think that confidence goes a long, long way in terms of uh, reception of him as an actor. Though, when you kind of see him for longer periods within a film, you kind of realize that he knows what to do with his physical presence, but he doesn't have like a process, it seems. He's kind of monotone throughout. Mm. He, he knows how to speak and he knows how to control his body, but he doesn't embody a character. And when he's angry, it's just him kind of raising his voice. When he's sad, he's just doing the same kind of thing. So he's more like meat for the camera, where the, the director can position them and say this line, and he will do it all comfortably. Which, if you just saw, you know, brief clips, you'd be like, oh, yeah, he's acting. He knows how to act. He's, he doesn't feel awkward. But I don't know if it's acting.
0: I would say that he's not acting. He's performing. Sure. And there's a bit of a He's difference. like reciting lines. He's performing what it looks like to act. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, you're so right. That's how I see it, because I agree that there's no process. And I agree that I don't know if he's like embodying a character because i will say with the character that he plays tom i felt was like despite being the lead, a very weak character like yes. he didn't feel like a real person in the mm. way that the other characters did like i didn't you look into these eyes and they're a bit empty right with the other characters their motivations are super clear like mm. the way they feel their emotions their micro expressions like you really feel like they're a person and you like don't need them to say anything for you to understand. That's what good acting is, right? Good yeah. acting is being able to watch it and like get it. Like, like you would with the real person, at least in my opinion. But with Harry, it's like he's performing acting. Mm. He's not actually acting. Yes,
1: I think for Harry, his performances are the sum of their parts. Mm. It's like the lines that you speak and the way you move your body. Whereas with a good actor, it's it's more than the sum of its, its parts. It's like, exactly. They have a process and I don't think Harry- has a process, yeah. but it, it, it's he's fine. fine though. He's like fine. that
0: being said, I was not watching I, it and thinking about his acting, which I did with Don't Worry Darling. Like yes. every time I saw him on screen, I couldn't see him as a character. I kept seeing him as Harry because like it just was really obvious that he was like struggling to act. But in this movie, I would kind of forget, get like into the movie, which is good and an improvement for sure. I don't think he would do very well in a movie that required more of him.
1: Well, I want to see him in a movie that requires less of him. Like, put him in, like, a Marvel movie or something. <laughs> yeah, I he'll I want to see a new superhero, Harry Styles.
0: I think he'd shine in Dr. a role Style. that requires less of him. And I think, because he has the star power for it. But mm. in a role that requires maybe a more complex and nuanced performance, I don't think he could do. But back to, like, the actual movie. I think it was, like, good. But not, like, great. Like, it mm. was okay. I There were things I really liked about it, though. I feel like it had a very complex female lead and I love a complex female lead. Yes. I thought that the female character was layered and nuanced and messy in a way that would be taboo to like see now or be like now, but makes sense when you watch a movie. She's mm. makes bad decisions, but she's not unsympathetic. I actually really liked it. Played by Emma Corrin, who I also think is a good actor. I think she's really great. I think the movie as a whole was a bit empty, a bit flat. I was saying, I think maybe you were saying this actually and I absorbed it into thinking that I said it, but it's like The Notebook, right? Where it's just like this like dramatic, romantic movie that's like good, but it's not like a great movie. It's just like a heart wrencher, which is what you said, which I think is true.
1: Yes, it knows how to, I don't want to say the film's kind of pandering but those films know how to uh, evoke an emotional response Mm. like there's just an inherent structure that just it works it's a formula and you follow the formula and you're going to have an emotional audience and this film you know continues that canon of you know exactly what you're getting and you know what the outcome of the film is going to be yeah from the opening moment
0: speaking of emotional audiences though the screening or like the actual watching of this movie was something (laughs) Mm. so if you were at the screening i'm sorry because we're about to talk a lot of shit and i promise this is not about you specifically but
1: (laughs) well it may be
0: it may be there's definitely people listening to this that went to the screening so whoops but oh my god it was insufferable like not the actual event planning itself great event like really well organized really nice great venue but just the people i'm sorry the pr girlies were getting too lit And then they were a fucking mess throughout the movie and it really ruined my viewing experience. I was sitting next to a group of girls who like were clearly a bit wasted. There was like an hour and a half of free drinks as well before the screening. Mm -hmm. And I don't drink, so I'm sober, but everybody else is a bit drunk. And maybe if I was drunk, I would have enjoyed it more. But these girls were like screaming every time Harry's name came on screen. Global superstar
1: Harry Styles. And that's clearly what... They were there for. It's like yeah. before the movie, it was, you know, this is a new film, but keen to show you guys. It stars these people, these people, these people, and Harry Styles, and then uh, eruption.
0: Eruption. Of screaming, clapping. Wo- it was like Woo Girl galore. Then
1: the movie starts, and it has, you know, as movies do, the opening credits. My policeman fades, Harry Styles fades in. Everyone
0: starts screaming. Yes. And then
1: when he shows up on screen for the first time,
0: everyone starts screaming again. Everyone's very excited. And I like it was so frustrating because throughout the movie, there was just so much cheering, whooping, yelling. And it's like, I'm trying to watch this movie. Like, I can't hear the dialogue because y'all are screaming your heads off. This is a movie. Mm. Like, where do you think? We're not at a concert. Mm. And some of us actually want to watch this movie because we actually like are genuinely interested in the plot and like discussing what this movie is about which I've been to like now quite a few screenings and I went to the Don't Worry Darling one which you'd expect to be really rowdy but that one was okay. There was a bit of wooing in the beginning bit of yeah. laugh throughout but it was like it this didn't affect my viewing it was particularly rowdy. Yeah like Don't Worry Darling didn't affect my viewing experience I was still able to watch the movie just fine but with this one it was so disruptive and like I honestly just felt like I was surrounded by a bunch of loud teenage girls and I mm. was getting fucking aggressive like I'm not even I'm so not confrontational at movies at all. Like, I will never turn around and tell someone to shut up. And I was this close. Like, I was ready to fight someone because I just couldn't hear anything.
1: I used to be more anal about movie theater etiquette. And I feel like I normally get more upset. And I'm probably more confrontational than you. Uh, oh, yeah. Miss will tell
0: people to shut up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I haven't done that in, in a long time because I'm just trying to chill out. As trying a, to be as less, an individual, yeah. but I kind of—I think you were more frustrated in the screening because I just found a it. Because
0: I don't normally I get just frustrated. found it kind
1: of amusing because I kind of it was able to turn that part of my brain off and just be like, "It's kind of ridiculous how obnoxious people are being. Let's just kind of laugh at that instead of getting all worked up."
0: But anyway, screener aside, do I recommend my policeman? I don't know. I don't dissuade anyone from watching it. But would I watch it again? Like, probably not. Like, Mm. I watched it once and that was enough and it was fine. And I honestly enjoyed myself watching the movie. Like, I watch movies for fun. I don't necessarily watch them because they're good or bad movies. And it's like, it's an enjoyable watch.
1: I think you already know whether or not you're going to like this movie. This movie is going to appeal to, like, a certain kind of viewer. And you already know if you're that kind of viewer. Mm. So, you don't need a recommendation to watch it. Or you don't need a dissuasion to not watch it. Mm -hmm. You already know if you're going to like it.
0: But speaking of recommendations and dissuasions, I don't have any big recommendations, not much. There's two things that I want to mention that were just like interesting reads for me sure. the last two weeks. The first one is a Rolling Stone interview of Selena Gomez that I thought was a really interesting profile slash interview. I love interviews where they like talk about the mannerism of like it's, it's a it reads narratively. I know one of my coworkers really hates them, but I love them.
1: Like profiles.
0: Yeah, but not all profiles read like that. Right. But it's like, I really liked it. I thought it was really good. It made me want to watch Selena Gomez's documentary, My Mind and Me, which Mitch and I watched last night, which I actually didn't end up finding. It was it was like fine, but like- It was
1: also fine. The yeah. profile
0: was so good that I was excited for My Mind and Me. And then I watched My Mind and Me and I was like, oh, I could have just not watched this and not really cared that much. But that I think it's a good review for the profile. So that's my first recommendation. And my second recommendation- is another article that was written by my editor at Pedestrian TV, Josie. She wrote an article about House of the Dragon's finale for those of you watching it, and it's really I felt I found it really moving. It's a really personal um, kind of condemnation of the finale scene because House of the Dragon marketed itself as a feminist series that was uh, predominantly led by women directors and women writers, which you know respects its female characters and doesn't submit them to the sexual trauma that women characters endured in game of thrones which josie writes a pretty scathing response to because actually all they did was swap out sexual trauma for birth trauma which is still fucking trauma that women endure at the hands often of men in these times because it's men that make the decisions that hurt these women and i think it was a really beautiful moving piece so i'll link that as well and i recommend people read it if you care about House of the dragon
1: i'll just briefly recommend new movie that i really really enjoyed barbarian which I, I mean, I loved it. I, I'm i surprised by how much I loved it. It's a new horror film. If you like horror films, I'd recommend. If you don't like horror films, uh, I thought this one was kind of freaky, uh, kind of vile, kind of yucky in like the best ways. Uh, and like all good horror films, it of course has something to say about society. And in the case of this film, I thought it was surprisingly complex in terms of its discussion of patriarchy, misogyny, gentrification and the lingering effects of 1980s reaganism so and it's also hilarious some of the I've funniest heard it's scenes, really
0: funny actually it's
1: probably the hardest i laughed in a cinema in quite a while but also the most spooked i've been in a cinema
0: yeah there's so, a thin line between comedy and horror
1: yes well this is a comedy director i think zach crager is that you say his name came from a comedy troupe the whitest kids you know And yeah, there's just like a pipeline of comedians to fantastic horror directors.
0: Yeah, my roommate and I had a really interesting conversation about that because he reckons comedy is absurdity and horror is absurdity gone too far, which is why Mm. they're so similar. And I thought that was a really smart observation. So, I just Mm. thought I would share. I think that's very true. But moving on, let's introduce today's topic, which is one that I've actually been wanting to talk about for ages and we're kind of finally doing it. So today we are discussing representation, diversity, and queer baiting in celebrity culture, especially with diverse casting. We're going to talk about first Constance Wu, who was in the news cycle like a few weeks ago. So it's kind of a stale story, but I've just wanted to talk about it for a while. So Constance Wu has been pretty outspoken about the way she was effectively cancelled by Asian American people for not being the version of representation that they wanted because they called her ungrateful because she no longer wanted to be on Fresh Off the Boat. And she, you know, experienced a lot of vitriol and like an awful Twitter pile on for it. And then weeks later, we've seen Kit Connor kind of go through something similar. So Kit Connor was the romantic lead in Heartstopper, one of my favorite Netflix shows. Uh, it's a beautiful queer love story. And he recently left Twitter because he was getting hounded by people uh, with accusations of queer baiting because he wasn't out as anything and he played a queer character, a bisexual character specifically and then he was spotted holding hands with a woman and Uh everybody was like you're profiting off queerness you're a fake queer ally or whatever and then he ended up actually being forced to out himself as bisexual. He's 18 he's a kid and I think that story and the Constance Wu story kind of embody a very similar theme of representation being a double edged sword and the way like fandoms have just completely weaponized identity politics to punish the very people that they want content from. So I just think all of that melds into a very interesting conversation on A, like representation with Constance Wu, but B, like queer betting accusations with Kit Connor, And I feel like we're going to come full circle because we talked about this with Harry Styles a couple of weeks ago, and I feel like I've changed my opinion on him.
1: Ooh. So yeah, I'm going to
0: eat some of my words. But let's get into it. I'll give you a quick recap of Constance Wu's situation for those of you who aren't across it. So Constance Wu kind of really shot to fame after being in Fresh Off the Boat, which is an American sitcom, about an Asian and American family specifically. And it's kind of like modern family, but an Asian family. And it was like heralded as like this incredible kind of First time people are really feeling represented and seen on screen. It doesn't shy away from feeling authentic in terms of how it represents Asian people. It doesn't shy away from stereotypes, which some people think is good. Some people are, I think, only just starting to become a bit critical of now because I think if you were critical of Fresh Off the Boat a few years ago, you'd probably be fucking (laughs) cancelled. Like it was, people are very protective of Fresh Off the Boat because it is the first time Asian American people really felt seen on screen in a way that didn't employ all these, like, Orientalist traditions, okay? So it was a really big deal, that show. And I really like it, actually. I've seen the first few episodes, but I think also it hasn't aged super well. But that is beyond the point. Anyway, Constance Wu was in that. She's one of the leads. And then towards the end of the series, it was kind of, it was going to close. It was going to end after season five. And Constance Wu was glad because she wanted to move on to other projects. Like, she kind of wanted to expand her career and move on. And then last minute, it was renewed. For a sixth season and Constance Wu was not happy and she tweeted, I didn't even think the tweet was that bad. She just said, fuck, so upset right now that I'm literally crying. Like it was just her being upset that she was having to remain in the show. But the backlash was swift and unforgiving. She was like completely abandoned and punished by everybody but specifically in this scenario the asian-american community she was told that she was ungrateful that she should be lucky that she gets to represent the asian community this way like how could she be so rude and graceless she ended up having to leave twitter because the backlash was like so intense and it's Definitely one of those things where, like, women of colour can know that, like, it's clearly because she's a woman of colour and the expectations placed upon her, far outweigh literally anybody else. There's a lot of racial politics at play here because it's like, yeah, women of color should be fucking lucky that they get to be in these shows and how dare they have any plans for their lives that don't involve pleasing their communities who they obviously exist to represent. So she left Twitter after that and she made a comeback this year. She That was in 2019. So three years later, she came back to Twitter and revealed that she was writing a book a memoir specifically and she released a statement on her twitter breaking her silence on the twitter backlash where she confided that the hate was so intense and that she essentially got frozen out of like the asian american community in like the acting sphere as well in the sense that like She was boycotted, so people just stopped talking to her, turned their backs on her, like she was uninvited from all these things, like she just was no longer part of the community and she felt really isolated. Mm. And then she said that a fellow Asian American star had actually, like in DMs, told her that she was a blight on the Asian American community because of what she said about oh, Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah, it was intense. And she also then revealed that she attempted suicide and survived. And then she was found by a friend who, like, rushed her to hospital. So she really went through this harrowing mental health journey, right? All because she no longer wanted to be on a show that is supposed to be groundbreaking for Asian American people. But it got worse, actually, if you thought. So then later on this year... She revealed in her memoir that she was actually sexually harassed on the set of Fresh Off the Boat in its first two seasons by an Asian-American producer, who she never names because she wants to protect him and the Asian-American community from criticism, which is so selfless in and of itself. But that's why she wanted out of the show. Because it had all these memories of, like, sexual harassment and trauma, and she just wanted to get the fuck out of there, because while it was great for everybody else, she was the one suffering. And I just think her whole story is so familiar, I mean, to all women of color, because, like, This is the problem with, like, representation and diversity casting, which I have been saying literally since we started, since, like, episode two of this podcast, which was on token diversity. It's, like, everybody wants representation, but they don't give a fuck about the mental health or the happiness of the person that is giving them that representation. Like, with Constance Wu, everybody feels entitled to her acting, to her character. Everybody thinks that she, like, has to play this role for us and that she owes us that because we deserve representation and that we deserve that at the expense of her health and safety. It's shocking that people drove her to suicide ideation because that is, like, the punishment she had to face for not wanting to be our representation anymore. And just, like... Even then, even then, after all that, when we found out that she hid being sexually harassed on that show for years because she wanted to protect it, she knows how meaningful this show is to people and she didn't want to stain its reputation. She didn't want to stain the Asian American community. She didn't want to ruin the reputation of an Asian American producer who she knew would go on to make great Asian American movies. And she like copped all of that for the sake of representation and then, even then, was, you know, punished. And ostracized for daring to choose herself, which is something that women of color specifically, I think a lot of people who aren't white, but specifically women of color, women face, is like... You have to choose between yourself and your community at all times because you can't choose both. Like either you look after yourself and your safety or you serve your community and we have to serve our communities because A, we're women and B, we're women of color. And we come from marginalized groups and we know what it feels like to not have representation and we know what a big deal it is and we do it for everybody else over ourselves. And, you know, I really feel that. I really felt that even just like in what I do in all the times I've had to like, get all this fucking hate and trolling and cop it for the, and like not say anything for the sake of like not demonizing my own community who was already having to deal with like negative stereotypes. I just think this conversation about Constance Wu, while it's happened a few weeks ago, like it creates an interesting conversation on what people owe us when they give us representation and if they owe us anything, which we've kind of talked about here and there. And I feel like I constantly shift my mind on it, but I have said for a long time that representation, you know, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you're praised for being the representation you want to see in the world of being part of something big, of, like, changing the lives of people. But on the other hand, you open yourself up to this intense scrutiny from fans who have a very specific vision of you in mind, uh, which they expect you to be at all costs. And if you don't give them that, then the consequences are swift and at times almost deadly. Mm. Um, And the fact that, like, her fandom punished her for not being the perfect Asian representation it's kind of what we're seeing now with Kit Connor, right? Though in a different way, because it's about sexuality rather than race, and both those communities have very different experiences. So Kit Connor plays Nick, the bisexual romantic lead in *Heartstopper*, which is a high school romantic drama. He's 18 now. He turned 18 in March. I think he might have been 17 when *Heartstopper* started filming. So he's he's a child. Like he was a child, and he was hounded off Twitter two months ago, after he was spotted holding hands with a woman. The issue with that being that he wasn't, I guess, out as anything in particular. There was no label on his sexuality. And fans had been demanding some kind of confirmation of what Kit Connor's sexuality is for some time. Because he plays a bisexual character in a queer show. But I want to say this about Heartstopper. So Heartstopper is based on a graphic novel But the TV series is really progressive in its casting. It has cast a diverse group of people. Everybody plays people of their marginalization. Like, there is a black trans girl that plays a black trans girl. There is a gay lead played by a gay lead. Like, it is really progressive and the show is really earnest and it's clearly trying to do something beautiful and good and is succeeding. Completely unproblematic show, beautiful show. I'd highly recommend it to everybody who hasn't seen it because it's just wonderful. It's just such a delightful show. And I was like surprised when I heard about the Kit Connor stuff, because I don't really follow the fandom drama, so I didn't know what was going on. But it's like I didn't really ever think about Kit Connor outside of Hutstopper and I did not know what his sexuality was, but I also didn't care. Because, like, he did a good job playing this character and I don't really care what his sexuality is because he did this job respectfully. So even if he was straight, it wouldn't matter because he played the role well. And the creator of the show supports him and wants him to be in the show, so he's obviously doing something right. But people were, like, adamant that he come out as queer because he plays a queer character. And he was accused of queer baiting the fandom and, like, profiting off queerness because he, like, I don't know, made money from a role in which he played a queer character. So, he had to leave Twitter because of all this hate, and he has frequently talked in the past about his disdain for this obsession with people's sexualities mm-hmm. and this pressure that, like, celebrities, you know, have to owe you all this information about them. Yes. He has talked about being upset Compulsory about those
1: Compulsory disclosure, Yes,
0: exactly. He has an issue with that. And then he got handed off Twitter, and then seven weeks later, he reappeared on Twitter to tweet one thing where he said... I'm bi. Congrats for forcing an 18 year old to out himself. I think some of you missed the point of the show. Bye. And then he was gone again. And yeah, that has created, I think, a bit of chaos and a bit of discourse in the community. Because on the one hand, some people are like, oh no, what have we done? And they're genuinely like reflecting on like what they have put this kid through. But like, on the other hand, it's just like, what if he wasn't bi? Like, people are like, oh, it's okay now because he's bi. Like, he's confirmed to us Mm. that he's queer and therefore it's fine. We support him now. He's allowed to be in Heartstopper, blah, 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 blah. But it's like, what if he just never labeled himself or he came out and he came out, quote unquote, but if he was like, yeah, so I'm actually straight. Would that immediately make him problematic? Mm. Because he hasn't done anything problematic. All he did was play a character in which everybody else involved in that show, including the creator, wanted him to do. And he did well did a great job it was very beautiful and sensitive portrayal of a bisexual teen character if he wasn't queer would it have mattered like are we allowed to cancel him for that
1: yeah because it is messy and it's sometimes like i feel like once you come to a clear answer to say yes or no this is good or bad, then you can always think of another situation that would kind of contradict that. Because firstly, well, if the creator is queer, then does it matter who is cast because this is ultimately this person's creation, like this queer person's vision. Yeah. And it doesn't and they just want to see the show in a particular way. Or do we demand that actors have some affinity with their characters that we're not seeing a kind of representation, but you know, there's no distinction between off-screen persona an on-screen persona because mm. uh, if we were to say no then I can think of you know dozens of instances where it'd be like well I don't want you know when it comes to race for example I don't want a white person to play a person of color it just seems kind of completely obvious but it's like where does these kind of identities, And where do these boundaries lie? And that's something which, I mean, I think we'll have to kind of negotiate here because Mm. it's not always completely clear where a stance must be taken.
0: Mm. I have more I want to say on that, but I'm going to deviate
1: first
0: and get into queer baiting for a bit. And then let's come back to the identity politics. So queer baiting is at the center of this discourse because the whole reason Kit Connor was getting harassed and bullied on Twitter was because of accusations of queer baiting. But... What that really proves to me is that people don't know what queer baiting means. So let's do a bit of a history on the term queer baiting. Okay, queer baiting has been co-opted by people in the 2020s, and I think specifically quite young people, like people under 25, who obviously haven't come across it in its other contexts. But it first emerged kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, as a term to refer to the literal baiting of gay men by straight men who would then assault them like it was a hate crime situation like that's what like the literal baiting of queer men and it was specifically of queer men by straight men like straight men would like trick queer men into like believing that they were also queer and then they would get them alone and then they would assault them it's really horrifying and then the meaning of that kind of changed a bit in the early 2000s especially in academic circles to then refer to the way certain industries pandered to queer people to exploit their market, which we kind of now know as pinkwashing, but that mm-hmm. wasn't the term back then. The term was more queer baiting. So it was this idea that like these networks, especially like TV networks, would widen their net of audience, yes. the fish they can catch, by making like shows appear queer-friendly so that queer people will watch them, but like they don't actually do much for that, which kind of is how I can exactly see then how the 2010 version of this word came up, which is how I first came across the word queerbaiting. In the 2010s, in the Tumblr kind of days, which is when I first came across the word queerbaiting, I think that will be true for a lot of our like 22-year-old-plus listeners, So queerbaiting to me at that point referred to the way shows would have kind of gay subtext or like homoerotic tension on screen that was never resolved with no intention to ever resolve it. So they would Mm. have, and and that intention part is really important. Yes, yes, yes. That's the key part of the story. So shows would have, for example, two characters that are same sex that obviously seem to have some kind of sexual or romantic tension and they like milk it because they want queer people to watch the show, but they'll never actually give us that representation and they don't intend to because they want to also maintain their conservative mm. viewers. So an example of that, probably the most well-known example of queer baiting, is in Supernatural uh, between Dean and Castiel. Any Destiel girlies listening to this <laughs> podcast? Um, but it was this idea, especially in the early days of Supernatural before they kind of made that relationship canon, but in the early days it was like, There was two viewers, like a clear romantic vibe between Dean and Castiel, but it was never enough to confirm that they were queer. It was like, you had to assume that it was all subtext. It was never like overt in any way. They never said, I love you. They never kissed anything like that. It was very like, it seems like these men are kind of in love with each other and it was just dragged out and people were baited constantly into continuing to watch the show because of like, maybe we'll get it this season. And you never did. I think actually at the end of Supernatural, like in the very, like just before one of the characters dies, they like have an I love you. But even then it's very lackluster. Mm. And another example of that is Sherlock and Watson, especially the BBC one, which also came out around the 2010 mark. That is also like a very famous example of queerbaiting. So is Merlin, the OG queerbaiting for people my age. Cause I was like, eight or nine when I was watching Merlin. Sure. But that is the gayest show I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And they are never canonically gay. It's like queerbaiting. So it, ha-
1: it pertains to like the possibility of queerness. Mm-hmm. It's about what these characters could be at a later point.
0: But there is a clear intention that it will never happen. No, it will and never be important. like
1: reconciled. Or because if it fruition. does
0: happen, then it's not queerbaiting because you yes. actually got the queer representation.
1: Yeah. So it's not merely like maybe what is assumed that it's representations of queerness that pander to audiences to, you know, exploit them to extract Mm -hmm. money. But it's to pander to queer audiences without actually ever explicitly doing so because it all exists in the future, or oh, in the future they may be together, or there's the possibility of them being together. It's all at the level of connotation.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because it's not even pandering, it's the promise to eventually pander to you because pandering right, implies so that they actually give you something. Right,
1: it's the promise to eventually... Yeah, that's... So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so
0: it's like, it's not even pandering, right? Yeah, it's it's you're a step right. before that. It's maybe we'll give you something in a few years' time, maybe, but we also know that we won't. That's what the, I think, most common use of queerbaiting became... Anyway, so that's how we're going to use the word queerbaiting. It's like that 2010 meaning of like a TV show with the promise of maybe possibly eventually having something queer, but the network creators are never going to do that. And they know they're never going to do that. And they're doing that on purpose. So now that we've discussed that, let's talk about Kit Connor and queerbaiting. And I want to get into Harry Styles in a bit too, because we talked about these accusations also being leveled at him. They've been, you know, I mean, Billy Eilish and Taylor Swift have also had accusations of queerbaiting against them as well. But with Kit Connor, it's like something that I want to make really clear is that a real life person can't queerbait you mm. because it's not a TV show with a network CEO extracting money out of you while knowing he's never going to give this to you and cackling manically at his desk. Like, that's not mm-hmm. what this is. Kit Connor is a real person. It's not. Queer baiting, because he's not a character that a writer's room is creating the plot for. He's a real person who is making real decisions based on his own happiness in his life. And he doesn't owe you something because he's not a TV show that you watch. He's a person. And that's really important to talk about because it's so inappropriate, I think, to bring up queer baiting in a context of like his sexuality because it implies that he's purposefully got a narrative of looking a little bit queer- Without ever telling you he's like not queer. Yes. which is not what's happening. And even if it was, it's not the same because people's sexualities aren't fixed sexuality is pretty fluid a lot of people will change their identity throughout their life and that's okay mm. you know there are people who sometimes think they're straight for their whole life and they come out as gay there are people who identify as gay for a long time and then later on think maybe i'm bi actually because they meet someone that makes them change them yes like, uh, ideas of the world like it's just sexuality is not fixed and so you can't accuse somebody of because like there is always possibility for queerness in their life that's the difference With this TV show, the whole point is that there actually will never be queerness in the story. It's fixed because there's a writer's room and a CEO and and there's like a TV show, there's a PR group, there's a company. But like in a person's life, you don't know that. And they don't know that because they haven't lived the rest of their life yet. So the accusation, it's just not, you're not using it right. And this term is being weaponized.
1: Yes, no, that that's very interesting because in doing research for this, I came across this edited book collection came out in 2019, edited by Joseph Brennan, called "Queer Baiting and Fandom." So, like exactly what we're kind of talking about. And throughout the book is chapters from different scholars talking about queer baiting in different texts and media. Like, some was in like Harry Potter. This opens with supernatural as a the case study. The most iconic
0: queer But then, case.
1: Related to this, there's a chapter on celebrity queer baiting. Which it just kind of immediately problematizes by saying, well, queer baiting ultimately is about a discourse pertaining to the truth of a text. So in supernatural or just any text, it's like, while we may not see these queer relationships come to fruition, the truth of the characters or the potential truth of the characters like is queer. But then when we're talking about a celebrity, we're suddenly trying to talk about the authentic truth of an individual which is already kind of problematic because when you start talking about the truth of someone, you start essentializing that person or you start not allowing for identity to be unfixed or mutable or slippery, which in reality it is. And also the only person that can confirm that truth is the individual themselves. But we're all just trying to play detective to try and figure out someone else's truth, which is impossible. impossible. It's a futile mission. And all it's going to end up with is kind of ultimately like reactionary and conservative politics
0: yeah and also on top of all that there's then just the idea that like Kit Connor doesn't owe you anything the same way that Constance Mm. Mood didn't owe anyone anything the same way that people who give you representation don't actually owe you anything and in our Harry Styles episode I was like kind of confused because I was like I do believe that I've always believed that celebrities don't owe you anything but also like with Harry I was like I don't know like he kind of Maybe he does owe us because he uses a lot of queer aesthetics. Right. But it, I think, like, in doing research for this episode, I have come to the conclusion that, no, he actually doesn't owe us a queer mm. label. Because why would he? And even I was trying to fall into the trap of, like, mixing him up with fandom personas of him. Mm. And it's, like, really easy to remove his humanity from the situation. But then, like, really, because Kit Connor especially, like, oh, my God, Kit Conner was 18.
1: Yes, I can't get right. over
0: that. I did not know who I was at 18. Like,
1: (laughs) no, I feel like I still don't know who I am.
0: Right. A lot of people are still figuring their identities out now. And it's like, we're 23 and 24. And it's just like, there are people who their whole lives, you know, kind of don't know. I mean, like Demi Lovato came out as non-binary just recently at like 28 or 29. Like people are changing all the time what they see themselves in the world does because we're all still learning and things change. And I just, like, cannot get over the fact that people actually thought it was okay to harass an 18-year-old. And also, it's like, why are you obsessing over the sexuality of an 18-year-old? Don't be fucking weird. Like, just don't be fucking weird. It's just weird. Mm. It's parasocial relationships gone out of control. But also, it's like, why do you feel entitled to that? Like, why does it matter? Which, I guess, then moves us into a conversation of identity politics. Mm. Because that's what this is at the heart of the conversation. It's toxic identity politics. Because the idea is, unless you're queer, if you exist or occupy a queer role or in a queer space, you are queer baiting and profiting off queerness and therefore you're a bad person. And I'm like, okay, obviously this is already a very essentialist take, which is just problematic in itself, like obviously wrong for that reason. But also like, it's complicated because he's not profiting off queerness. Like, I think with Harry Styles, not that I think Harry Styles also owes us anything, but I think the conversation about Harry Styles maybe profiting off S has a little bit more to it. It's got a little bit more substance to that argument, whether or not it's true, because he has an empire, right? But Kit like just a random kid who played one role as a bisexual teenager for one season in a show where he has been loved and supported by the cast and the creator who chose him to be in it. Like, it's not even the same. Like, I don't even know where accusations of profiting off queerness have come from because like tell me how he's profiting off queerness is being in any show that has queerness in it then profiting off queerness as a whole like does that mean any person in any movie with people of colour in it is profiting off people of colour like it's complicated and I don't think it's true because at that point I feel like you're commodifying yourself people are commodifying themselves by making the argument that by Connor kind of being in a show that is about queerness he's profiting off queerness sure yeah because how queer baiting is being weaponized and co-opted and changed now is that instead of it being about like this network thing it's this idea that queer baiting equals profiting off queerness they're not synonyms they're not the same word and like he's not even profiting off queerness but like that's just not even what queer baiting means I think another interesting part of this is that the creator of Heartstopper and Kit Connor's castmates as well have all come out, you know, in support of him and have essentially slammed the people accusing him of queer baiting, and have said that people clearly don't understand the show and don't understand these stories and like they just don't get the point of it. If they can then go ahead and do exactly to Kit Connor what homophobes would do to Nick in the show. But an interesting point about that I think is like the creator specifically of Heartstopper supporting Kit Connor, because it's like I think all marginalized groups, this isn't even like specific to the queer community, but with this instance it would be. But all marginalized groups need to understand that you don't own content that is about you. So for example, with Constance Wu and Fresh Off the Boat, like Asian American people don't own her or own the show. They don't get to choose... Whether or not she remains in it and whether he should be punished if she doesn't. Uh, we can say this with literally all communities. Like, I don't own Miss Marvel, for example, because it's about a Muslim Pakistani girl. Like, if things happen in that show that I disagree with, I don't own it. And it's not my place to be like, well, actually, fuck this show. Everybody in it is problematic. Because like, it's literally written by other people of my marginalized community and we all have different stories to tell. And I think a problem with identity politics now is that all representation has to represent everybody or else it's bad representation, which is a huge problem that we're seeing because then people will tell stories that represent them their experience of their marginalization. And then other people from the same community will be like, well, that doesn't represent me. Therefore it's bad and problematic, which is just not true. And I feel like if anything, you're making it a lot fucking harder to get more diverse stories because you're not allowing diversity in stories. Like you want a very specific version of your representation and you want it to be done a very specific way. And when it's not done your way, you think it shouldn't be done at all. And then less people are going to do it. And you're actually just walking backwards, right? Like with Kit Connor. He doesn't own the show. It's not his show. A queer person wrote this story. It's their story. If they're okay with Kit Connor being in it, even if Kit Connor was straight, then it's. I just don't think it's other people's place to be like, that's queerbaiting or that's profiting off queerness, because it's not. It's a story written by a queer person. They chose this. It's their story, and they get to tell it how they want with whoever they want. And it's not less queer because it doesn't support another person's version of what queer is. It's queer because it's written by a queer person. End of story. And that's just what it, representation is or what it should be. But with toxic identity politics, people are so fucking demanding all the time with every kind of marginalized group, not just hard stop by. That's just our case study. But like in every like type of marginalization, be it like race, be it sexuality, be it gender identity. Like it's an issue we're seeing more and more and we're just not going to get what we want with this attitude.
1: I feel like with identity politics, we have the bell curve meme, which is like conservatives, which are like identity politics, are ruining politics, like identity politics is, is awful. It's destroying the world. Mm. And then the, kind of the middle, which is the liberal approach, which is like, no, identity politics is really important. And then like the more far left approach, identity politics is destroying the world. It's the worst.
0: <laughs> I know, it's so So true. it's this kind of
1: like subversion, not regression of uh, all that.
0: Yeah, like where anti-identity politics in some ways, because yeah. it reduces people to their identity, which is actually problematic.
1: Yes. I mean, representation is always going to be a slippery discourse, a slippery conversation. I, I feel like this is also not to like, try and end that conversation. I think representation needs to be an ongoing conversation. And we need to be constantly negotiating how we want ourselves seen. So mm. I think this is not like we're saying a, a representation is like that conversation should be a non-starter. But this is like part of a, an ongoing negotiation. Yeah, and if like that makes sense.
0: You know what I'm saying is like we can want representation, and I definitely do. But that doesn't mean we get to fucking abuse people mm. who don't give us the representation that we want. Like that's really the moral of this conversation: yes, yes, is yes, yes. identity politics should not be confused with, like, now just cancelling somebody or calling them a bad person. Like, Constance Wu is a bad person for not wanting to represent you the way that she did. Or, like, Kit Connor is a bad person for not coming out as queer because you wanted him to. Like, that's when identity politics becomes problematic Mm, because mm. a person is reduced to their identity and stripped of their humanity, and then it becomes- Of their specificity. Of their specificity, exactly. And that's why it becomes fucking problematic because it's like- this person is more than just representation Mm. and no one deserves that abuse anyway.
1: And of course, like, you know, when we're dealing with particularities and specificities, that's always going to be difficult. Uh, And it's always going to be difficult to represent something specific while also kind of appealing to a whole demographic or a whole community or a whole group of people. And in doing research for this, I was kind of uh, looking into like queer baiting and queer representation and also the kind of impossibility of representation or how that's always going to be a difficult topic. And this article, which I'll link uh, in the show notes, uh, was kind of saying, well, we talk about queer representation, but like, what is queerness? Depending on who you ask and what context is being used, it both means, like they say, like anything everything and also nothing. Uh, and I think that's worth noting as well. I mean, I'll specify here the different kind of context that queer uh, as an identity or as a concept is deployed. I think the way we use it kind of most uh, casually or in everyday usage, queer is kind of-
0: it's an umbrella term. Isn't
1: Exactly, I was going to say. It's an umbrella term. It's LGBTQ, I, mean, I, I plus, plus, but the Q can be anything within. So it, you can kind of refer to the queer community at large to refer to like Anybody gay or lesbian. Anybody who's not
0: straight. Exactly. Not cis. Not cis,
1: yeah. Anything that's not hetero or cis normative. But when you look at, I think I see it more in academic circles, uh, but queerness takes on a bit of a more specific meaning where queerness or being queer is not just an identity which kind of escapes heteronormativity or cisnormativity, but queerness is that which cannot be named. So queerness points to people who any kind of label is insufficient. And so queer notes like the outside or the opposite of identity. So in a way, in again, like maybe this isn't how it's used every day, but in uh, like queer theory, for example, queerness is is a non identity, or it's the impossibility of an identity. Yeah. Because identities are restrictive; they're fixed. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, it's like a rebellion against identity. Yeah. Queerness so is a rebellion against identity.
1: Then you know, as this article kind of suggests, not you know being prescriptive, saying like this is bad, but just noting the complexity of this discourse, the idea that queer representation is like kind of oxymoronic because you can't represent the thing which is unrepresentable Mm. how can you represent something that's unrepresentable and then the issue with that in terms of like this weaponization of queer baiting is that you want queer representation but that demand is already somewhat prescriptive it already denotes what that representation should look like which is kind of the again opposite. i mean that's identity politics It's prescribing what an identity should look like when queerness when used in this kind of more specific context is non-identity is the absence of identity yeah
0: prescribing it is oxymoronic
1: so i think that's just also interesting to note because i feel like as i kind of read more and progress more in my politics i move more and more in that direction of uh, kind of anti-disclosure i mm. mean i I haven't listened back to our earlier episodes, but I'm sure... I
0: think our politics have changed a I lot. Think, I think they've changed. I think now. I may
1: have, even while being kind of, quote-unquote, anti-identity politics then, probably aligned myself more with some of those ideals. And then now I move towards, like, you don't owe anybody anything. I am against this, like, constant disclosure. I feel like all we do all the time is just mm, disclose ourselves. Yes. And it's so cannibalistic.
0: What you said about queerness being unrepresentable like in that academic use of the word, I think is really interesting because I actually think that is what underpins the difference between race uh, representation and like queer representation because I see a lot of white queer people love to like compare and conflate the two. Like if you criticize situations like this with Kit Connor, it's like, oh, well, you'd be really mad if a white person played a black person. And I'm like, yeah, because racial identity is fixed and also not one you like need to disclose. You don't come out as black. You just are black. Like it's mm. a little bit different to queerness because queerness is unrepresentable in that way. Whereas race is like they're not the same. And we shouldn't pretend that all marginalizations exist and function the same way, especially because people of color who are queer exist as well. well so yes. this is just a messy conversation. Right,
1: right. I think in a way, when we talk about queerness in this context, queerness is unrepresentable. Whereas race is is only representation race has no substance but race is only the representation of race which is kind of like what we've been yeah trying to do like we're trying to say that race has no content because race doesn't prescribe a specific type a specific type of person but race is only the representation of that identity i don't know does that make any sense
0: i feel like i'm yes i feel like i'm kind of getting it but i feel like i'd probably phrase it a little bit differently but i get what you're saying in the sense that like oh i saw this really interesting tiktok actually this is like a slight tangent but it's it's relevant where a black queer woman was having this interesting conversation about the way white queer people have turned queer identities into racial identities and they like treat queer identity in the same Mm. way that we treat racial identity when they're actually really really different they have different contexts they function differently they're prescribed differently and also yeah this idea that like blackness for example which is what she was talking about is like yeah a fixed identity that is very obvious it's like you can probably look at someone and be like yes that person is not white (laughs) like there Mm. is you know it's like but also it's like kind of a purely phenotype situation as well because it's like you're not an inherently different person to other people Mm. and you probably live your life in very similar ways you just of this race it's cultural you have a cultural experience that differs to another person but you're not intrinsically different and so i I feel like that's maybe what you were getting at with like lacking of substance i feel like it's such a
1: (laughs) yes no (laughs) that's what i'm trying to say sorry i'm you know, you guys are catching me in a a moment of kind of trying to crystallize this idea. Yeah, an epiphany. So I'm not articulating it super well. And I may disagree with what I'm saying, you know, in an hour from now. But it's I'm getting this idea of like, if we're talking about like sexuality and and queerness maybe specifically, queerness is only content, but with no representation. Whereas a race is only representation with no content.
0: I think we should clarify when we're saying like race, substance, content, what we're saying with what Mitch just said with racial identities, like not having substance, quote unquote, what he's saying is like, they're not essentialist. Like you can have a black character who is black because they're black. They don't have to embody very specific essentialist ideas of what we think people who aren't white are. Like they're just black because they're black. That's the identity that they were born with. That's who they are. But with Earth, it's a little bit different. You have to write in there's like these there's ideas, essentialist ideas of queerness that are prescribed to a queer character, which is why there's all this discourse about like queer representation and whether or not the actor is queer or not queer because you can't look at somebody and know they're queer. Like there have to be these essentialist behaviors, thoughts, is that they do. Like it has to be behavioral rather than just looking at someone. And I think that complicates things a lot. And it's problematic because there shouldn't be essentialist, behaviors required for somebody to be of an identity right and we shouldn't be policing identity like that because then that's what this becomes it becomes like policing how queer somebody is and if that's queer enough for them to then be our version of representation or if it's queer enough for then us to call them queer and it's like policing identity is the exact opposite of what queerness is because the whole point is that it escapes this heteronormative cisnormative policing of how gender and sexuality can be expressed So, yeah, I think that's really interesting when we then talk about the difference between racial representation and queer representation, because racial representation is represented in literally just like somebody looking non-white. That's race representation. Mm. It's like, it can be deeper than that. We can have stories told from cultural perspectives, but it's not quite the same as queerness, because racial identities are so specific And there's shared experiences in a way that isn't quite the same. Like two white queer people can have incredibly different experiences. But two people that are both, for example, Pakistani, probably have like somewhat more similar experiences. There's a more shared kind of bubble. Because queerness is not a race <laughs> yeah i guess i just wanted to make that point because i feel like there is some proper conversations happening and white queer groups that want to conflate race and queerness when they are actually really different identities that function differently that require different things in a conversation and one is like more essentialist than the other mm. like you can identify as certain sexualities or genders based on how you identify, but you can't just like identify as black, you know, like it's not quite the same. And that fluidity in gender and sexuality is kind of the problem that we're seeing now in these identity politics, because somebody could just not be out like Connor, for example, he just wasn't out. And like all this conversation is kind of fucked because we wouldn't have this conversation about a black actor because they don't have to come out as black. Like it's a bit different.
1: I did pose this earlier to you, which was like, could uh, a black actor who passes play a white person?
0: And, and I, I think said, obviously, yes. Yes, because the difference is being white is not an identity. Exactly,
1: exactly, yes.
0: Whiteness is not an identity, so it's a little bit different. Yes. <laughs> and straightness is not an identity either. Mm. So like a queer person playing a straight person, who gives a fuck? Because being straight is not an identity. It's not this shared experience. It's not this marginalized thing where all these people who are straight have this shared experience of being straight. Like that's not the situation. Because
1: queerness is only queerness in opposition to, to kind of the cis- normativity. Norm- yeah. The same way with race only comes into existence kind of in opposition to whiteness.
0: Yeah. Like in an ideal world where we don't have all of these marginalizations, nobody would give a fuck, Mm. right? Like nobody would care who plays what character and identity politics wouldn't like identity politics exists in opposition to the marginalization of people. That's what it was born of. It's born of a frustration of people being silenced. So then identity politics started as like, actually only people of these groups should be able to advocate, play, represent whatever people of these groups, which is a fine idea. It's not a problem. It becomes a problem when it becomes essentialist. And we start to punish people for not being like this version of that identity. When we start to identity police, when we start to like have prescriptions of what these identities should be, then it becomes problematic because it's no longer like a productive conversation. And we've actually just kind of come full circle and become conservative again, because really what's the difference between conservative identity policing and non-conservative identity policing. It's still identity policing and that's still problematic. Anyway, that was, I feel like a huge, huge, we just had like some epiphany and a huge tension, but I'm going to bring this back to Harry Styles because I mentioned earlier that my opinion of him has changed and I'm no longer as critical or as harsh of him for, you know, having this persona as like a queer kind of person without being out as queer. And there's a few reasons for that. The first one is like what Mitch said earlier about queerness being a lack of label. And that is actually what Harry is. So maybe him not being out as queer doesn't make him not queer and maybe he doesn't need to be out in order to be this, which I think is obvious but also very easy to lose sight of. And the second thing I wanted to point out was this really interesting quote that Mitch found in a book or article. Where did you get that from?
1: Uh, the same book, uh, the edited collection, Queerbaiting and Fandom.
0: Yes. He found a really interesting quote in there that like completely changed my perspective on celebrity queerbaiting.
1: Yeah, so this was in the chapter on celebrity queerbaiting and how that's complicated. And it looks at, you know, all of these responses. Actually, it's a case study on Nick Jonas, who I didn't know was a figure who was seen as, like, queerbaiting. Yeah, I
0: had no idea of that either. Nick Jonas has always looked very straight to me, but go on. But
1: anyways, it was looking at, like, a lot of the discourse and conversation on, like, forums and other mediums about Nick Jonas. And it quotes this one user from this forum called Dial Lounge who says... Who cares if he's, quote, using the gaze? We use him just as much. He's hot. We notice. We post pictures and some drool.
0: Yeah. And I just like laughed when I read that because it's like a very casual way to actually say something quite profound. And it's true because I think something we forget is like for Harry Styles or even Kit Connor, like fandom has projected an idea onto him. And then they profit off that idea. Like Harry Styles, for example, being like this huge queer star, this queer figure, this like making leaps and bounds for the queer community without ever actually being out as queer – the reason that he's able to do that is because people treat him like he's queer. People give him that queer identity. People like project this idea of him. They want him to be their representation and they allow him to be. Like you've given him this platform. You've allowed him this stardom. You've allowed him this star status. You fund his lifestyle because you get something out of it. With Kit Connor, with Constance Wu as well. It's this idea of like yeah, who cares if they're kind of making money off this because we are the ones that allow them to and we get something out of it. Like it's a transaction. Mm. It's a transaction. Like Kit Connor, people can accuse him of profiting off the queer community, quote unquote, but it's more realistic to say that he was paid to give you representation, which he did. So it's like, you got something out of it. You got representation out of it. So it's not that simple. That's how I saw it anyway.
1: Yeah, no, definitely interesting. There's kind of a two-way street.
0: Yeah, it, it is a bit of a two way street. And I think it's worth mentioning that like these people don't just exist and we just like watch them like we're actively involved in their lives. We have parasocial relationships with them. We are the ones that like propel them to stardom by consuming their content and giving them the viral status that they have. We actually have power as an audience that we forget and that we ignore. And I think it's important in these scenarios to remember that not that I think who cares if he's using the gaze, which is what that person said, but it's more just an interesting conversation into the fact that this is a discourse that requires two parties. This is a conversation. This is a discussion. It's not one sided. We are as involved as we can be and want to be. And we should remember that when we accuse people of like profiting off queerness when we're the ones buying their products.
1: (laughs) Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, as always, we'd love to thank Johnny and Pia. So, thank you so, so much.
0: If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate one-off to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. But the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Sleha Official. and give me a follow if you like today's episode.
1: And follow my Instagram at Mishas.Miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music.
0: Also, if you have any comments or suggestions that you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at Here's a Thing though podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you do.
1: Cool. Thanks. Bye.
0: Bye.